It's Friday, Friday, Friday on I'm From The Internet. It's a very special presentation. You got the whole episode, but you only need the edge. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry about that. This is... It does tie into what this is, though. Um, so uh, a little while back, I was messaged on Twitter by someone, uh, it turns out, who uh, someone from New Zealand Public Radio who runs a show there, and they wanted us to come on as guests to talk about edginess, specifically 90s and 2000s edginess, because it was something that had come before on their show, Reserved Recommendations, which is a show that they do about, like, you know, problematic faves, I guess you would say. And... You know, it's right in our wheelhouse, and it seemed interesting, and plus, like, New Zealand is just, like, a wellspring of comedy and podcasting goodness, so of course I want to be on there. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, that's where Reese Darby is from. You know, he's he's the actor who played Guy Mann in uh, the X-Files mini-revival, so, you know... Great actor, uh, you know. That's also gave us Taika Waititi. You know, I, I feel like I feel like people kind of got sick of him, but now he's kind of cool again because of that gay pirate show that we all love. So, again, just bravo for New Zealand. And uh, also, I will say it is it is uh, you know very surreal. I'm like two degrees separated from like a nation from New Zealand's like greatest national tragedy of the past decade. Uh, it was like thinking about it, so that's that's very that's very. We talk, I actually messaged him about that. And he's and, uh, it was very funny. The, the guy who hosts the show, he said that uh, March fifteenth is actually his anniversary. So yikes! <laughs> I feel sorry for him, but uh, uh, he was a very sweet and nice guy. Uh, um, and just in general, they gave us full clearance to put this on our feed, so I'm putting it up here. So hey, you guys get a bonus and enjoy me and Winslow talking about edginess. With some wonderful uh, New Zealand people. If you've ever wanted to hear someone say Johnny the Homicidal Maniac with a New Zealand accent, stay tuned because you're going to hear it. This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Kia ora and welcome to Reserved Recommendations. This is a show about great trash, difficult art, and our complicated relationships with art and culture. My name's Hugh, I'm the host of the show, and I'd like to take this opportunity to put in a very mild content warning for the show as a whole. Sometimes our recommendations on this show are reserved just because the thing that we're discussing is in some way not good, but sometimes there are aspects of the art or artist that may be confronting for some people. Check the episode descriptions for more information, and do be aware of your listening environment. All right, this evening I am talking to uh, Jay Brandstetter and Winslow Domain from the podcast I'm from the Internet, as, lo- as, as well as many other things. And the reason that I wanted to talk to you guys is the last couple of episodes I did were talking to tabletop role-playing creators about role-playing games and that was because there was like a an awareness week for New Zealand um, tabletop role-playing creators uh, that I want to try and raise a bit of awareness about but there was this recurring theme that kept coming up because a lot of the stuff that people wanted to talk about in terms of like problematic or odd games were from this wave of like trying to be avant-garde and not quite getting there yet games that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, And there was a lot of points where we kind of got in the the conversation into saying like, okay, to explain this, I'm going to have to tell you about the 90s. Um, 
and that seems like a th- a kind of a cultural thread worth worth pulling on, and that's kind of what you guys' podcast is about. Yeah, um, our podcast is uh, specifically about a website called somethingawful.com, which uh, it, it sounds like that website is like geared specifically towards offending as many people as possible. I think something awful doesn't, it, it, it's not like rotten.com, right? Um, it was a comedy website that was very, very influential uh, in what is uh, kind of the earlier days of the uh, mass internet culture, right? Um, and so we have... Uh, a, a huge collection of threads and posts and, and uh, kind of artifacts from this website that capture the very spirit of the, the kind of edgy art that you're talking about. And so I, I'm just an outsider. I love it. Um, big fan. And Jay is the historian that goes digging into it. Yeah, I'm the one who was personally immersed in that for like the past 14, 14 years, uh, basically ever since the mid 2000s. So I'm, I'm someone who kind of grew up in that culture. I'm someone who kind of, you know, moved beyond it and grew, thankfully, but I know a lot about it. I have a really good memory and I, and I'm pretty good at making connections and associations. So I seem to have had a lot of luck. Uh, the way our show usually is, is I will compile the information into a document, uh, use a lot of primary sources. A lot of it is us just reading from posts directly with a little filter over. So, you know, it's, a, it's us reading as opposed to doing that. But then also like um but then we'll do commentary, we'll analyze stuff, we'll do jokes, of course. It is fun. There's there's a lot of laughs to be had. But I'm I'm very happy with it because yeah, we do actually are pretty critical and thoughtful about this. It's not just us puffing up this edgy humor from 20 years ago, but at the same time, it's not just us like wagging our fingers humorlessly and being like, hmm. no, it's, we, we, we appreciate the good, but we also are not afraid to call out the bad. And and I should note that the function of this podcast is not like the edgy part of it is just tangential to it. The function of the podcast is the uh, cultural import of uh, somethingawful.com, which happens to be very edgy. And while Jay is very experienced with uh, the Something Awful forums, uh, my internet experience were, uh, I, I was from the Marilyn Manson forums, which was, you know, obviously uh, the the clenching of all the butts in the room is exactly the reason why uh, that this podcast exists, you know? Um, and so it, we, we are not going through to kind of provide absolution for the edginess of the past, but I think that there is a strong, uh, yeah, like, almost neo-puritanical um, aversion and uh, overcorrection against like s- uh, spicy takes, edgy takes. Um, that is uh, the, the internet needs to know exactly where we came from. Um, not us, but the internet itself, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Because one of the things about something awful in particular is, is people talk about, or rather, there's a like there's a thread you can join from uh, the inception of a site called 4chan through the the GamerGate phenomenon, which was a big flare up <laughs> about the concept that women might enjoy computer games. Um, right. Through to the way that particularly like right wing politics is done online uh, at the moment, and 4chan comes directly from something awful, right? Yeah. yeah, it was uh, for forums user. Uh, was he moot on 4chan or was he moot on something awful? 
I don't remember what his something awful username was, but yeah, Mo- Christopher Mootpool is what he went by, and yeah, he was he was a something awful poster. There is sort of a misconception he wasn't banned from something awful and then created 4chan. He created 4chan while being a something awful poster and continued to post on something awful for a couple of years after creating it. But but a lot of the people who were the first sort of generation of 4chan posters were people who had been banned from something awful's anime sub forum and what in an event that is called the Pedocost. So you can kind of draw your own conclusions <laughs> from that. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I want people to understand that there's not like a prime mover in any of this stuff where it wasn't like a whole bunch of uh, dudes meeting in a parking lot to like, let's be evil today. Um, a lot of like the origin of edgy humor on something awful and like also on um, 4chan is that like... Uh, I mean, there, there's so many ways to explain this, but like, imagine the a, a culture raised on like something awful um, on on South Park and Fight Club and stuff like that. A lot of the media was about you are a faceless husk in a sea of faces, right? Like you are just this empty, this void person, and on the internet, it could feel like that. But if you made something that made people respond, people would 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 engage with you, and you would feel like a human being. Um, when I was a young man, I was I was definitely uh, a dickhead, and I was very much uh, an edgy person that would poke and, and press buttons. And if you get enough, generally speaking, young men together on uh, 4chan or on something awful or on um, any number of other websites um, that have kind of metastasized out of this, um, you will create this eternal doubling down effect uh, where it starts off with people having like, uh, you know, the spiciest possible jokes about the Holocaust, right? Which, you know, Holocaust jokes are pre-internet. People have been doing those for a long time. Uh, Poor taste humor has been going on for forever. And then they just keep getting raunchier and more depraved and more grotesque and then someone's like dude what if it was funny if i bought like a nazi uniform dude what if it was funny if i like learned german dude what if it would be funny if i actually spray painted swastikas on graves and it spirals downward and and everybody is just doubling up off of the previous person's ridiculous thing. It wasn't all like that. A lot of it was really funny and really lighthearted. There's some very cute stories, but you know, this is just an aspect of like, this is kind of the roots of what you were saying, you know, the nineties and the, the early two thousands of internet culture. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess like the, the thread that I want to pull on, I suppose, is that like, I do have some, affection for that i was a big fan of um, johnny the homicidal maniac um mm-hmm. and and squee which is the other book by jonan vasquez who who wrote that um i was super into like uh first the the role-playing games were like mostly white wolf which is the like everything is dark and gritty and miserable and you're a werewolf who's going to flip out and eat your friends and then like their hey check this out it's really fucked up spin-offs like Hull and which is about an entire planet which is a landfill full of monsters um and 
so I like I still have some affection for that, and I'm I guess I'm really interested in the way that that kind of almost innocent aggression kind of mutates and metastasizes as you as you put it. I'll let Jay field this one, but I do want to say I have like unlimited affection for a grim dark. I think that's the most fun. I, I like all of my favorite media is like as bleak as possible. Um, I'm, I'm, I am literally as we're doing this, I'm looking at the the work I'm doing right now because I'm making a a card game that is set during the last three days of human extinction. So I'm a I'm a big fan of exactly what you're talking about. Definitely, yeah. And I was make sure that like, we are not anti darkness or anti or anti edginess as a concept. In fact, one of the things I think is really fascinating is how edginess kind of evolves, and adapts, and is kind of being reclaimed. Like some of my favorite comedians are women and people of color and trans people who who are able to be edgy about their own experiences in a way that is genuinely kind of shocking, and but also like in a way that's funny and not hateful. And sort of like you mentioned about kind of having that affection for it, I I do have that affection from it for it as well because it's kind of what we came up in, and a lot of stuff that I do. Enjoy. The way that I think you talked about it kind of mutating, like since we were, you mentioned that the context was specific was the 90s, like, you know, we talk about how the 90s was kind of like the ter- the period they called the end of history in America, where the idea was like the Cold War was over. We didn't really have any external threats. And, you know, I come from a biology background. So the way I think of it is it's kind of like how when human beings grow up in a sterile environment, their immune system will turn on itself. And, and that's when you start getting like all these like really bad allergies and illnesses and stuff. And and with with this, it's kind of like that. It's like we didn't have any enemies. So we kind of turned ourselves. We, we started becoming more edgy we went through like a divorced dad phase we just started becoming like uh really really be, you know really finding ourselves in ways in dirtbag ways and and that kind of that sort of arms race kind of kept going like you were mentioning and 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 i feel like also that kind of led well into the 2000s where you know that was also a very not in a good time for american culture where we almost kind of priming for what kind of came for there where we spent so long and so long telling us like you can't tell us what to do we're going to be like this and then when things finally got really bad we kind of yeah, everything kind of just went in a really bad direction. If you want to look more into that exact phenomenon, um, John Boys of uh, of Secret Base on YouTube, he's a sports uh, sports documentarian, sports writer, just a terribly, terribly intelligent and very funny guy. Um, he has a series called Fighting in the Age of Loneliness, which is a five-part uh, history of the UFC, which um, it's... Uh, I'm someone who's like fascinated with with masculinity. I, I I can't stop writing you know stand-up comedy bits about masculinity. Every time I think I've written, I'm like I've put it to rest. I, I keep adding to it. And the subject matter, uh, I think, like you you can kind of have a, a similar trajectory for the um, for UFC and like the crazy wrestling, uh, hyper violent wrestling stuff. Um, with the kind of the edgy humor, everything needed to be extreme and, and and intense. And I, for one, love extreme and intense stuff. Like I'm a huge metalhead. Um, but what we're seeing now is like kind of what Jay was saying is that like we are seeing uh, the the reclamation of that exact thing by the the people who were traditionally targeted by it. There is a um, God. There's a there's a bunch of really interesting uh, black metal bands out there, and uh, black metal as a genre uh, is like 
on its face, it is like technically a non-political genre, but there are a lot of like Nazis in the the music scene, right? It's probably comparable with like Warhammer in terms of like yeah, uh, things yeah. which are not necessarily Nazi, but which attract a, a suspiciously high number of Nazis. Right. Like, I mean, it, it's be it the tragedy of of a lot of this stuff is that Nazis were unbelievably good at branding like all of the branding was just superb ugo boss all that stuff rolls royce i mean come on there's a reason why it continues to attract people right um like the 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 we there's that's a whole conversation of like the 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 psychic abyss and the uh the black hole of nazism and and white supremacist cults on the internet um but there are a number of like black metal and extreme uh, metal projects that are not just um, happen. They don't just happen to be very feminist forward, but they happen to be like very leftist and like on its face, uh, very, um, very uh, female forward. Like uh, to just one in particular is, um, you know, a lot of black metal bands are based around like Lord of the Rings. So you have bands like Gorgoroth and Burzum um, and stuff like that. And there is a uh, a black metal, I think it's a one woman black metal project called Feminajgul. They took like Najgul and Feminazi and made it Feminajgul, which is just, wow. Very like, good. It's so, that's so funny to me. Yeah. I will say, uh, with tying into the masculinity talk as well, that is something that we talk about a lot as well, because something awful was overwhelmingly uh, young men, typically young men who were who were kind of like, you know, in middle class or higher backgrounds, you know, this was before the Great Recession. A lot of them were people who went into like, computer jobs who were pretty, you know, pretty well off in adulthood. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's like one of the sort of theses that I'm kind of coming around to is the idea that like nerds in the 90s were presented with a with a society that was unjust. And instead of deciding to reinvent a more just society, they just wanted to rebuild it, but with them on the top. Like, the thing was always, they make fun of you. It was like in school, they always told us, you know, they make fun of you because you're a nerd, but you're going to grow up and be rich, and they're going to be asking if they if you want fries with that. And you could be like, huh. It was never, oh, don't worry, they're going to learn the wrong and be better. It was always, don't worry, one day you're going to be on top, and then you can uh, be the one kicking sand in their faces. And right. you can <laughs> definitely see that. To to quote um, Futurama, there there's the bit where he's um, where Fry is like cheering on the like the billionaire politician, and and Leela's like, but Fry, you're not a billionaire. Why do you want this? And he goes, Yeah, but someday I will be. And then people like me better watch their back. You know, it's <laughs> it's the exact same sentiment. Absolutely. You know? Like I've got, I guess, two thoughts about that. One of them is like, you're right. The do you remember the like nerd hierarchy chat that did the rounds on the internet? It's like a viral yes, from, image meme. From the brunching shuttlecocks. I mentioned that a lot because it's very funny because furries are at the very bottom of it. So I always mention that also as like an example of like very fun '90s early internet like anti-furry humor that isn't super hateful, but it's just kind of like how things how things were at the time. But I mean, it, it like fundamental to that worldview was this 
I mean, obviously, the branching shuttlecocks thing was a joke, but but yeah. it was literally a a chat that that hierarchically organized types of nerd and nerd subculture as to like who got to mock who, and that that was kind of fundamental to the mindset in a lot of ways. Um, the other yeah. thought I had is that this this thing you said about like the world is unjust. I must reinvent it so that it's unjust in my favor personally like that's the whole basis of the nft grift right like Mm -hmm. we're going to make an alternative economy where i am the winner because i have first mover advantage it and there's um (laughs) i mean the nft grift is is a is a very fascinating thing but but you can see the like direct through line between um, I'm going to remake the world and put me on top. And this is the, uh, the list of like people who you can criticize. And like, this is the hierarchical ranking to like, that is that you, you just took white supremacy and just swapped out some parts. You know what I mean? And so like, uh, it's, it's, it's all the same type of thinking, like a, a horizontally organized people is like the only way that we can prevent self-extinction but we cannot seem to figure it out (laughs) because i cannot handle my neighbor getting the same amount of like good things happening to him as me then why are they're not good if they're happening to both of us you know well certainly like the kind of aggrieved white man usually white usually man who was being edgy on the internet in the in the 90s and early 2000s certain certainly couldn't handle that i think there might have been other groups of people who had an easier time with the idea of of organizing things horizontally. I think the other, I can't remember which one of you it was who mentioned it, but the the uh, movie, well, the franchise of uh, stuff, Fight Club, came up, um, uh-huh. and I think that's a really good touchstone as well because it's like it's kind of Starship Troopers level of. Uh, satire that is also read perfectly straight by the people that it's satirizing yeah it's it's just right up there with patrick bateman you know it's the same same type of thing where it's just like uh this is like you know uh, uh american psycho was a movie uh written uh, the book was written by a gay man the movie was directed by a woman and like the number of dudes that are like oh yeah that dude's just like me is it's and like the guy in that movie is pathetic he's just in a suit that's it i mean the weird thing about patrick bateman in particular is that he has this extra kind of mimetic existence which i think is by now completely independent of what his actual character is like he's just the guy from the meme where he explains something in a plastic jacket in front of a stereo right yeah i mean that's like a whole discussion of like the purpose and the lifetime of a meme of like, what, what does it mean when it diverges from its original point or like maybe the original point was completely taken out of context. There's uh, one thing that was just popping up recently. One of the like far right response images of you, you've probably seen it. It's, it's uh a white woman with very short hair and she's like 
screaming something at somebody else. It, it was taken out of protest, right? And uh, you you can just see like all of the uh, veins in her neck, and she looks very very intense, right? Um, and if you look over, uh, and, and if you look over like how it's used, it's always used as like you're triggered, you're a snowflake, you look like this feminist who can't control her emotions. And then if you they they finally found the video or refound the video of what she was actually yelling about, and she's yelling at Nazis. She's she's like yelling at people who are like actively talking about. Like, not soup Nazis, not, like, people who didn't like the movie that you like. People that are, like, we need to round up groups of people and exterminate them. And she's yelling at them to not do that. And her whole existence on the Internet is to be the the caricature of the out-of-control feminist. You know? And the, I mean... No, I mean, that's that's right. And... Of course, the like the the hidden secret of that like women can't control their emotions or or facts don't care about your feelings. I guess is the like really famous <laughs> formulation yeah. is that that people who say facts don't care about your feelings have really strong feelings. They just don't think that what they're experiencing are feelings. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean that's the my god. That's the funniest. Oh God, I have so much to say about that because like the, we have allowed as a people debate twerps to, to have an undue effect on our society. Uh, ben Shapiro and, and all of these like debate me, please debate me. That's not how society gets organized. We don't find truth through debate, Right. And so we, we have like this, this undue um, emphasis on people who are just, they think that talking fast and uh, making these points about feelings over facts is going to actually have a, a, in any kind of relevance to the world at large. Yeah, you to, know. Kind of, to kind of tie that back into what you were saying about that image of the screaming woman or about people misunderstanding those movies, it's a, it's a, it's a fixation on aesthetics over content. Even yes. if it, yeah, it's the fact that it looks like what a dumb person thinks a smart person is, even if what they're doing is actually less than doing less than nothing. It's actively giving a platform to people who who are making the world a worse place. And and I guess also to kind of tie into what you were saying earlier about those movies and people misunderstanding them, I think when we talk about edginess, that's also a part of the conversation that kind of is is going on back and forth is the idea of the, the sort of as an artist like what is your culpability for that are you responsible for people misunderstanding your work and i feel like for a while we were kind of pushing for more artists to be in that but now we're kind of realizing that there's no bottom to that that there's no amount of explaining or prefacing or no matter no matter how on the nose you make it someone will always misappropriate it and even if they get it they'll, they'll just lie and say it anyways because they, they think it'll make you angry or whatever so it's ultimately one of those things where if you're kind of realizing like you know it's a bottomless pit you need to stop throwing stuff in it and instead just kind of trying to you know, just focus on making good art and educating people instead of worrying about, you know, punishing people for, for the actions of others, for how they misunderstood their own artwork. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting what you said about the the debate nerd thing, because that's 
and I'm going to like I run the risk of of people giving me a hard time about this, but I I genuinely don't think that's as big of a thing here in New Zealand. I think that the right wing. <laughs> Rage group. Are you guys accepting uh, immigrants? <laughs> Can I move there? Yeah, you guys are white. It'll be fine. Um, oh, yeah. we, oh, we, we have the standard true. colonial history of like really fucked up immigration rules. Um, right, right, of course. But, yeah. you know, as, as uh, British colonies go, you could do worse. Um, what, what we have is we have um, people who either shout about, their being, about how they're being suppressed but don't actually want an argument. They just want to shout about how they're being suppressed. Or we have like the respectable wing of it is people who just say confidently wrong things in common sense language um, so that that boomers can feel superior, like quoting them to you in Facebook posts, basically. But we don't really have like the Ben Shapiro, like um, demolishing people who are are not equipped for any sort of debate. in a in a kind of public display of, of rhetorical skill thing the so you might not have that in uh in like your your local politics but i'm sure you know joe rogan is huge here but he's also an, an undeniable like global figure oh uh, yeah in the same way that like absolutely Andrew tate is like massive even in like greece and stuff like that um i i think that the you know, I don't know what everybody else's Twitter feed is. Uh, I know some people whose entire social media feed is just dachshunds. And uh, that's that must be nice because mine is just terrifying. Um, but the, the very funny thing that's happening right now that is kind of like the encapsulation of everything that we're talking about is uh, conspiracy theorist uh, uh, RFK Jr. is trying to challenge a Ph.D. medical doctor to a debate on whether or not Wi-Fi opens the blood-brain barrier to, like, give, like, the the trans chemical into your brain that turns you into, like, a demon or something like that. And a million morons are on the internet just hooting and hollering about, like, no, debate him, debate him, you should debate him. And the reality is, is you could have, like, the cleverest debater in the world arguing about whether or not the sun is real. And if you just have somebody who talks fast enough, the other person won't get enough points. And then they'll say, well, looks like the debate is settled. The sun is not real. Plus, it's at night. How can we ever prove that the sun is real? And that's how we settle it. It has nothing to do with reality. For sure. You know? And and like both the, the right-wing rage grifters and the, the actual cranks both have the advantage of being able to speak mostly in code. Um, yes. So – Someone who's going, someone who's proposing to talk about real things has to use language that actually refers to something. Um, Nazis will, or, or TERFs, TERFs are an excellent example actually, because they, they are experts at the Mott and Bailey will, will do like, trans women aren't women and retreat to, I was just talking about where the sex is real. Um, and, and they'll use all of those sorts of codes, which are very hard to argue with in a debate context because you have to then spend all that time going through and defining people's terms for them. Right. I mean, it's, if you, you want to get deeper into that, there's the entire world of crypto fascism, which is, uh, it, it's, it's this thing that is like so, 
unbelievably frustrating because at once this kills people. This drives trucks into protests. This murders people. This is the the beginning of a of like extermination of races. And at the same time, it is also very, very annoying. It is also very childish and immature because what it is, is uh, it, it's, it's people who are just using every dog whistle to talk about the exact thing that you know what they're talking about. And then you try to put their feet to the fire. And then the wimps that they are, they go, I wasn't talking about that. Why do you think I was talking about that? I, I have 88 in my username because I, I think it's just a good number. I just happen to be born there, uh, born in that year, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like Nazis are like the most wimpy losers on the planet. And they refuse to just like, just, all right, controversial take, but I have, if we're comparing two evil apples here, I have more respect for the dudes that are like, hi, I'm a Nazi. I'm a white supremacist than I do for any of these guys who say the exact same politics without actually claiming it. You know, because at least the like the, the, the guy is saying it out loud. and He's going to accept the consequences. He's got the swastika tattooed on his chest. The other guy's just a weasel and he's actually going to get in without question, you know. Our um, fun local version of the the crypto fascist is um, I don't know if you're aware, but one of the founding documents of New Zealand is the Treaty of Waitangi, which was the the treaty that the Crown signed with uh, a representative sort of group of Māori chiefs, because Māori, like uh, Native Americans, were best understood as like a collection of peoples who all came from the same place, not like a nation at that point. But anyway, um, that technically enshrines certain relationship between Māori and the government in New Zealand law. Um, government has historically scammed its way out of that at every possible opportunity, but now we're in a place where their feet are being held to the fire on a, a bunch of different things. We've got a whole suite of uh, homegrown conspiracy theorists who think that if they can prove that Māori weren't the original inhabitants of New Zealand, and there's like a racist myth about a pre-Māori people called the Moriori, um, which I won't get into because it's too complicated. Um, but also there are ideas that like maybe the Vikings came here before Māori did because – course. God forbid Always brown people do something first. Um, but they think that if they can prove that Māori weren't here first, that that will, by magic, completely invalidate the treaty because they haven't actually looked at it. It's, it's an agreement between specific groups of people who are named. It doesn't say just the people who are here first. It's like these guys sign up with this guy who's a representative of the crown on these principles, but they, they by magic want to avoid having that argument and just go, well, it doesn't make sense because uh, Vikings were here first. And anyway, there aren't any Māori left because they all married white people at some point. So there's no purebred ones and it, it, therefore it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, man. You know, uh, I when when people try to do like the gotcha questions about 
your politics and like, well, what do you think about trans people on sports? I know that you care about trans people and, and all these other things, but, but what about should trans men be able to, and, and, and the reality is, is buddy, I do not give a shit about sports. Okay. I just want everyone to be able to do like, just live in, in a general peace. And I want a lot of people to leave me alone, but because that is not attainable with the, the you know the, the people that I'm talking about and the people that you're talking about, now I have by nature become a uh, a valid and frothing defender of trans people in sports. <laughs> you know, like it, it's I I um, as I've gotten older, I I was worried that I was going to become someone who uh, just kind of relinquished my ability to care about the world. Uh, but as I've gotten older, I've realized that, oh, no, I will maintain my ability to care. Uh, I'm just going to have a lot more work to do every day because the these weirdo history wonks and Nazis and freaks will just not stop coming. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Look, um, this is a fascinating conversation. Uh, I will really happy to continue it with both of you. Uh, we are around about at the halfway point, so we do need to quickly break for some station messages, and we will be back right after this. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as the accessmedia.nz app. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. Check out npr.nz for more information. And we're back. You're listening to Reserved Recommendations. This is a radio show and podcast produced by Manawatu People's Radio Te Reo Irirangi o Tangata o Manawatu with support from New Zealand On Air. So cheers for that, guys. Um, I'm talking to Jay Brandstetter and uh, Winslow Domain from the podcast I'm From the Internet, which is a look at uh, the, the comedy website Something Awful and its various consequences for, like, global culture everywhere these days um and we're talking about i guess we we got kind of sidetracked into modern politics but i was really interested in the roots of modern politics in kind of uh 90s and 2000s uh performative edginess so like one of the things that we talked about early in this episode is um we mentioned South Park in passing, and I think South Park is a really good kind of uh, snapshot because I think, and I might be wrong about this because I didn't watch as much South Park as other people, but my impression is that early South Park was much more uh, cogent in its political analysis and and for all that its politics are having politics as a mistake. Like um, – I feel like it started from a place which was much more uh, reasonable and has kind of progressed into a point which is basically like, get off my lawn. 
Well, I um, as someone who watched a lot of South Park back in the day and is pretty uh, knows a lot about development and everything, I, I, my sort of take on it is I think in the early seasons of it, it didn't really have that much politics. It was more kind of just like weird, surreal, huge, gross out humor and kind of non sequiturs and goofiness. And when there were pop culture references, it was just kind of like here's a celebrity that we're making fun of or here's a politician that is annoying or whatever. And then as time went on, the creators, a fun thing about those creators, uh, Matt Stone and Trey Parker, is basically that they are people who went directly from film school to becoming like very financially successful television showrunners like their student film cannibal the musical was like released by trauma and made a bunch of money they got paid by i think like universal or something to make like a bunch of like in-house films and then they went right to south park and became millionaires these are people who've never really had to like exist as adults and like work and live in the world without that protective barrier of being a super wealthy person in a high position of power in society. And I feel like as time went on, because of that, they got more, they kind of went into sort of an echo chamber, but they became more insulated and they also became more, they thought that their opinions were, were more, they were like, the world needs to hear this. It became more a part of the show until eventually it's just straight up like polemic. Like for me, the part when I stopped watching South Park was the man bear pig episode, because that was, I realized the, the first part was they weren't being funny anymore. Like there's no mm-hmm. jokes. It's literally just them making up things about a politician that they don't like. So they can say that the, the very real problem that he's trying to bring awareness to doesn't count because the guy doing it is annoying. It's like you were saying earlier that it, it just, it, it becomes very facile and vacuous paradoxically, even though they dedicate so much more time and effort to the politics. It's, it's one of those things where, uh, okay. So I, well, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of reveal my ignorance here. I don't know. Um, if when I say libertarianism, does that mean to you what it means to me? Yeah, in terms of politics. Yeah, libertarianism in New Zealand is is the same beast. Generally speaking, we have uh, they call themselves libertarian. They're actually just kind of authoritarian right and also basically incoherent uh, political party in parliament right now called the ACT Party. Um, yeah, I mean. Basically, but, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it's it's very funny that you, yeah, I think uh, I one. Yeah, you're we're we're right on the same page. But I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Go ahead. Oh no, no, I was I was just like I was trying to contextualize that for for yeah. New Zealanders. Like that's that's kind of the vibe we're talking about. I think is 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 act. Um, who like they have had past leaders who have been genuinely libertarian in the sense that they were willing to say completely deranged things in public, like incest uh-huh. should be legal between consenting adults, um, which like you could make a philosophical argument for, I'm sure, but also as a mainstream politician, do you want to say that in public? Right. See, that's, that's exactly kind of what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that um, a lot of the, Okay, how do I say this without getting uh, set on fire? A lot of the like core of um, like the first level of libertarianism and the first level of a lot of extreme politics, they always start at something somewhat reasonable. Like, hey, the American government is pretty wildly corrupt and incompetent. I don't know if they should be doing a lot of the stuff that they should be doing, dot, dot, dot. You know, children should be able to work in coal mines and uh, heroin should be legal for everyone. You know what I mean? So, like, it, it starts off as something very reasonable. And that is uh, that is kind of what has tied a lot of the um, – it, it's 
given them this enormous power of eternal recruitment. You know, they are constantly able to recruit people because like anytime the federal government uh, does something wrong, you have the Republicans who are going to start hooting and hollering about like, this is why we need small government. The Democrats are going to start hooting and hollering about this is a bad example of us or like this didn't actually happen or whatever. And, you know, it's just like you always have this, uh, recruitment engine that is pointed at like a very stupid and extreme conclusion, you know, yeah. we're so far right in this country that anybody who says that they are in the center, like they're like, yeah, I'm in the center. I just think that some people should be put in camps, you know, like they're, they're so far to the other side, you know? Yeah. I, there's an intro. I had a couple of thoughts about that, which just to kind of go back to the to the '90s forum culture thing. One of those is like when you're thinking about that libertarian point of view. It's something that makes sense if you personally haven't had a lot of trouble, and and I wonder to what extent like being online and having lots of time to do posting. Um, self-selects for people who have a certain amount of security in their lives because like they don't have stuff to do to prevent themselves from starving which would stop them from just stuffing around on the internet all day um and i also wonder like to what extent it's uh driven by what i'll call like the elon musk factor like Elon Musk has enough money that it's very difficult for him to fail in a in a realistic financial sense just because he can make mistakes forever and absorb losses and he's allowed that to convince him that he is the most intelligent man in the world I I'm going to defer to Jay but on that point um I had somebody say something very funny to me recently about that exact thing um, she is a, uh, she's, she's a friend of mine who is, um, a, a sex worker. Right. And she is, um, she also did a lot of like childcare back in the day. And I asked her like, did that ever become a problem? And she was like, Oh no, no, no it wouldn't be a problem. Even if they found out about me because the people that I was like taking care of, they're so broke that they don't have the time to be, creating problems out of nothing you know and so there are a lot of people who's like if you have nothing if you if you're not working two jobs you're probably not you're probably just filled with time to post you know but i think jay probably knows more about like the 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 demographics yeah and i will say that there has been kind of an interesting shift i feel because yeah like in the 90s and for most of the 2000s a lot of internet culture like this very online culture was people who were pretty well off because there was especially in the pre-social media days i would say and then there was kind of a shift where social media came along and then the great recession happened and then a lot of people who were terminating online were people who were not very well off but because of just the circumstances of life they did have a lot of free time like these are people who maybe didn't have like very fulfilling jobs or people who didn't have jobs at all and these are people who had real problems in their life but they felt like they, they felt very helpless and this sort of sort of channeled it into it whereas before that it was people who were comfortable and bored and just kind of sort of just trying to 
has trouble. Like I know you used the word performative edginess earlier. I think performative is a big word and a very, very important part of this because, um, you know, like in that, like that performance is continuing, but it's changed. Now I feel like modern performative edginess on places like the chans or whatever is just as facile and perform and, and, uh, and, you know, one dimensional as the performativeness on places like Instagram or whatever. It's just that the performativeness is negative instead of positive. You are no longer presenting yourself as, you're no longer going to present yourself as good and aspirational. It's a race to the bottom. It's who's the most nihilist, who's the most depressed, who, who cares the least, who is the most fucked up. And that sort of race to the bottom is where things get really scary and depressing for people. And as someone who used to be a part of that and got out, I feel like that's a very important realization that's very helpful is when you realize that, yeah, this, a lot of this isn't really real. It's just people people just repeating it over and over until they believe it. And once you kind of realize that and can get, dig out, it, it, it helps you so much. And you know, that, if nothing else, that's one thing the takeaway I want to get from this is like, yeah, as someone who used to be a part of that world, it is a bleak, unfulfilling place. And most of the people there are miserable. Like these are, these are people that are miserable and are just make, trying to make everyone else miserable. Cause that's the only thing they know how to do. And, and you know, that's, I don't know how to fix that, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm doing what I can to help people. And I'm been having, seeing a lot of success with the show. It's one of the most gratifying things is having people from hate sites and stuff tell me that like, they don't do that anymore. And like, they hang out in my discord now and it's, it's really nice and fun. I'm really glad that I get to do that for people. Yeah. I, I think like you made an interesting point about the shift from like pre-social media to social media, um, which is like, because there are two things that happen, right? There's there's a shift away from these, I guess, somewhat more curated forums to the kind of open slather of places like Facebook where you can just kind of create a group within this uh, ecosystem and, and go hog wild. But also because access starts to be through apps which come stock on your phone, this is the point where like – everybody's grandma is now on the internet doing like the everybody's grandma version of something awful posting, which mm-hmm. is like a, a modern, deeply weird phenomenon watching people, your parents age show up and do like horrible, edgy humor 10 years out of date, thinking that they're the most kind of cutting thing in the world. Oh, yeah, no. And I, will, I do think I should mention one of the things about something awful that makes it kind of unique and also very interesting to study is that is that it had a paywall back in the days. Like it started in 1999, and the paywall was around 2001, I want to say. It, was t- it cost $10 to register and post on something awful. So it, because of that, that, that barrier is one of the reasons why it, I feel like it's more interesting and kind of – because people who posted there, you, you know, they actually had motivation to follow the rules. And also that made, meant the moderation had a lot more weight, whereas like on something like Facebook or Reddit, like – you know, there's no moderation. It's all just algorithms now. And these people, these, these, these are companies where they are financially incentivized to keep people on as long as time. So they just want to allow as much as possible. And that's one of the reasons why things kind of keep getting worse like this is because it's, it's against their own interest to, to, to keep these people from doing these things or keep them offline. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was never a, a something awful guy, but I used to spend uh, sort of between 2000 and 2009 or so, I used to spend a bit of time on RPGNet, um, which oh, yeah. <laughs> we do not have time to get into the deep weirdness of, of specific RPGNet beef. Um, although, although I will say like I'm a number, I'm a member of a number of like just post a funny picture type groups on Facebook. Um, and fan groups for musicians I like. And watching the thread dynamics of like 
RPG Net Flame Wars replicate themselves, but with boomers on Facebook is fascinating because it's like, I, I don't know, it's like uh, doing a core sample and being able to see geological time or something. Like you can just see this thing replicating itself and going faster and faster because the thing is broader and the user base is less like cultured to how you have to behave on a forum. Yeah, they it's, haven't it's, developed the antibodies to that. It's funny. I'm sure you've, some of you have probably seen the uh, the the tweet about it. But you know, everybody was wringing their hands together because you know um, a bunch of billionaires put themselves in a tin can and rocketed to the Titanic, right? Um, and a, a lot of articles were popping up with people clutching their pearls about like, how dare you make fun of this, you know, extreme, totally unpredictable tragedy. Right. Um, and then somebody just did a little bit of digging, like the scratching of the surface for like, okay, so what did people say about the Titanic? And if you look back to the Titanic's first posting, people were just posting just gag after gag after gag for like, in it, like order of magnitude, greater tragedy, right? Like a staggering amount of lives were lost, and and the like. New York Times was still just posting like, well, at least they gave a ball, like they gave a ballroom to the mermaids, you know, like yeah. You know, one of the courts was really like was like I was one of them saying like I'm sure it was like basically saying that the people who died in the Titanic probably wouldn't want to survive if they saw the way that the, the people in the newspapers are making fun of them, and yeah, it, it, that's one of the things like. As a, I'm an internet historian, but that's one of the reasons why I have a fascination with pre-internet media is because people have always kind of been like this. It's just that the medium has changed. It's very fun drawing those direct comparisons between modern internet culture and like how things used to be. It's very fun kind of seeing that. There's a, there's a thing that I thoroughly recommend looking up, which is the Great Scrapple Controversy, which um, – I, so I, I, Scrapple's an American food, which I don't think – is like widely made anywhere anymore but it was like a regional thing and i think it was the new york times in the late 19th century their letters to the editor page had basically an internet flame war about this food scrapple but in slow motion because people were handwriting letters and mailing them physically to the newspaper to but if you read it, it it's it's a, a flame thread it's yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that. Some of my favorite um, favorite parts of early internet were just people losing their minds, and like you can just imagine the sweat forming at their brow as they're tapping at their keyboard, and you know, oh god, what is something awful had like articles at the front page. You know, it wasn't just the forums; they also had a lot of stuff on the front page. They still do, sort of, kind of. Um, and one of my favorite pieces they ever did was an exchange between these two, uh, like, 19th century uh, general stores, propri- like, proprietors of general stores, each one puffing themselves up, like, trying to sell the most powerful, like, you know, gopher poison or whatever. And it just, each response back and forth was just getting more and more deranged, but in the language of a flame war, but also in the language of the 19th century. It's, ah, uh, is, isn't is language fun? 
it, it, it's it's a lot of fun, and and I suppose the uh, the end point of this conversation is is probably like. People have always been like this to some extent, but the internet allows us to be like this a lot faster. Now, we mm-hmm. are rapidly coming up on the end of our time. Thank you very much both for, for joining me. It's been a lot of fun talking to you. Um, really quickly, because Google Meet is going to boot us in like three minutes, possibly two and a half now. Um, plug your things. Jay, go ahead. All right, yeah, well, um, I'm Jay Brandstetter pretty much everywhere. You can find me on Twitter. Um, if uh, My Twitter, I have a link tree that links to everything. I'm from the Internet to my main podcast. I have a couple other ones I do, and YouTube. Uh, my other big show is called uh, The Grey Muzzle Archives. I'm a furry, and I interview uh, elder members of the furry community. So if you want to know what being a queer nerd was like in the before times, like before the Internet, or it's very interesting. And I've had some very fun people. My most recent guest was a Hugo-nominated uh, horror author who before that was a cartoonist who did fat fetish comics so it's very interesting conversations that we have it's it's great i'm I'm really happy with it and i'm winsley dumaine i'm an illustrator out of chicago in uh in the united states and i also do stand-up comedy i'm uh you know the other guy on i'm from the internet i'm also making a card game and i design a ton of stuff like i literally i'm an artist for a living i make a lot of weird stickers and you can uh, just search winslow dumaine anywhere and you'll find me um and if you want to play the card game it's on my website and i'm looking for play testers and it's all for free so you can just let me know how you feel excellent yeah, we're, we're bringing the gatorade should be thicker beam to new zealand wonderful exactly. wonderful no one knows it here and they they should thank you guys very very much for talking today thank, thank you. you this was so much fun You've been listening to Reserved Recommendations, a radio show and podcast from Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi o Tangata o Manawatu. The show was produced and presented by me, Hugh Dingwall, and I also composed our theme music. It's called Sack Jazz, and you can find it at wolfboy.bandcamp.com. If you enjoyed this show, why not go ahead and share it with a friend? You can find the last 10 episodes at npr.nz slash show slash reserved, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want an episode older than that, try searching for Reserved Recommendations on YouTube. You can find me on Twitter at Objective Realty, or you can follow the show on Facebook. And finally, Two People's Radio is a non-profit community access station. If you like this or any other piece of their fine audio programming, why not fling them a dollar or two? You can go to npr.nz slash donate for more information on how to do that. 